Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the publisher and bookseller Sylvia Beach. First of all, I just wanted to make a quick note. As you may or may not know, the episode that we had meant to release today was on the 1996 film The Birdcage. We've had some unfortunate technical difficulties there and we're going to have to re-record that episode, but we will still be releasing it in the future. What we have for you today instead is an expanded version of what we had intended to be a mini episode originally. I'm very sorry for the unexpected change in schedule there, and I hope you enjoy hearing a little bit about Sylvia Beach instead today. We have some content warnings for this episode, but not too many for once. Like, not too many, but they're, like, pretty intense individually. Okay. So first of all, uh, you know, once again... We have the Nazis in this episode, only towards the end. You know, it's just mostly in a kind of general background sense. It's not going to get too hairy for Sylvia personally. Okay. And we have a suicide. So if that sounds like something that you would rather not listen to, that's completely fair enough. And we welcome you to join us for our next episode instead. Sylvia was born on the 14th of March, 1887 in Baltimore, Maryland, under the name of Nancy Woodbridge Beach. She decided herself to change her name to Sylvia. We don't really know why. I think it's a nicer name than Nancy. Yeah. Uh, I think it was probably also a less common name at the time. Probably so. Likely it was after her father, whose name was Sylvester. Oh, yeah. Sylvia was quite unwell as a child, and she therefore, for her younger years, didn't have a lot of formal education. But like a lot of children who are quite like isolated and in bed a lot as a child, she developed an intense love of literature and philosophy and history and all of those wonderful things. Later on, when she was moving in literary circles, she would notice that students who she sold books to seemed to require annotations and guides and things like that to understand the works that they were assigned. But she had been forced to discover every book for herself without any preconceptions. Mm -hmm. And she thought that that was quite a good type of education. Okay, I think both have their merits. Yeah. When she was 15, her family moved to Paris for three years. Her father was a minister and it was for his work. Um, A minister? uh, In a church. Okay. You know, I think they were Presbyterians. I don't really remember. It's not important. I wasn't sure if we were talking about, like, politics or... Oh, that's fair, yeah. (laughs) Um, They moved to Paris, and she meets the city in which she is going to live for most of her adult life. Her parents really loved France and the French, and Sylvia, too, loved France and the French. Good. But she was quite sheltered because she was 15 at this time, and she couldn't get near what she called the living Paris. Mm -hmm. Uh, I probably should have at some point mentioned that I can't say the French words, so I've just neglected as many of them as possible, and I apologize for the remainder. (laughs) They did move back to America after three years, though, and she grows up there and Mm. does general growing up things. And then when she's older, she moves back to Paris. In 1917, she is at the Bibliothèque Nationale, and she comes across a mention that a book that she's heard about can be found at a particular bookstore on the left bank. And as Sylvia records it, she was drawn irresistibly to go to that bookstore. This sounds like something fake out of a novel. Yeah, so I don't know if this is true or if this is her romanticised retelling of it based on what is about to happen to her. Would you like to take a guess at what is about to happen to her? I assume she's going to meet the love of her life. She may be about to meet the love (laughs) of her life, yes. So. Good. Keen. She goes to the bookstore uh, and she hesitates at the door looking in. 
Uh, I don't quite know why she's hesitating now after being so irresistibly drawn there. Because she knows she's about to meet the love of her life and she's nervous. <laughs> uh, but a young woman who works in the store or who owns the store more properly notices that she is hesitating and gets up and draws her in very warmly to the store. Uh, and Sylvia's quite surprised by this. She doesn't usually find the French to be so welcoming to Americans. Mm-hmm. But the woman whose name is Adrian tells her that she really likes America and Sylvia replies, well, I really like France. And they spend a really long time talking and laughing together and recommending each other books. And it's a very pleasant interaction. Sylvia recalled that her hat blew away down the street and Adrian went running off after it for her and brought it back to her. This is so fake. I love it. (laughs) I mean, it could be lies. Like, we don't know. Yeah, like, I'm willing to. That's not an unrealistic thing to happen. But in the context of she went to this bookstore on a whim and Mm. met the love of her life. Not on a whim. Not on a whim. That's not the word I meant. She went to this bookstore. Driven by fate. Yeah, that's what (laughs) I wanted. Yes. So I'm just going to describe... Adrian to okay. for a little bit because once she has been established in Sylvia's life there's not really much of a like story there to tell mm. about her like they just kind of get together and then there are a couple and there isn't like some narrative to tell so let's talk about Adrian now for a little bit she sounds like a very pleasant person Sylvia describes her as being very vivacious very alive very warm mm-hmm. uh, she describes her as plump and matronly in appearance she seems like one of those people who just like really enjoys being alive that's good. And just, like, is very enthusiastic about all aspects of that. She's very effusive in company. Uh, she loves to cook and to eat very, like, simple, hearty dishes, what Sylvia calls peasant dishes. Mm-hmm. There's this wonderful quote from her, from Adrian, that goes, I loved fats. I was not afraid of becoming fat. I saw in them the effects of goodness in the world. <laughs> Which just, yes. like That's so wholesome. Yeah, it is. She does sound very wholesome. That's good. The two of them are often contrasted when people write about them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like... There are a couple, and they are different in appearance, so that's, that's the angle people tend to take. I think they both had dark hair, though, so we don't have a blonde and a brunette. Don't you get started <laughs> Not good enough. Adrian, as I said, is quite plump. She wears these very, like, long skirts and little vests in a type of kind of, like, traditionally, like, peasant Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of form of dress. Whereas Sylvia wears, when she wears skirts, she wears them shorter and she insists, and this is perhaps the most relatable content that we will do in this episode, <laughs> that they have pockets uh, yeah. because a working woman has to have pockets, obviously. How eminently reasonable. <laughs> Indeed. The skirt that I'm wearing today has pockets. Oh, how good. It's it good. recognizes that you are a working woman who needs pockets. That's right. Yes. Sylvia is quite wiry and slight in her figure in contrast to Adrian uh, and she wears bobbed hair so she has this like overall quite boyish Mm -hmm. appearance and also in personality Sylvia is quite pragmatic whereas Adrian is quite spiritual and emotional and things like that okay Adrian is also involved in both the Parisian literary and lesbian communities and so she can help Sylvia not I don't think be introduced to them, but kind of like make further connections within them. Oh yeah. Did Sylvia know that she was interested in women before she know. met Adrian? Okay. There's not really a lot out there about this. Like so Sylvia has her own memoirs uh, that are centered mostly around her bookstore. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't actually mention overtly that she and Adrian were in a relationship or anything there. Okay. There is one paragraph in which she like explicitly mentions lesbians, which we'll come to in a bit, that her editor had her cut out. Oh. The book I read about it that was like a, a biography of her, I'll tell you the name of it. Uh, it was called Sylvia Beach and the Lost Generation, A History of Literary Paris in the 20s and 30s by Noel Riley Fitch. It 
was clear on the fact that they were lovers, although it also just as equally would just call them, like, very close friends and things like that as well. But it didn't really go into, like, Sylvia's feelings about her identity Mm -hmm. or anything like that insofar as I could tell. Okay. This is the only relationship we know about? Uh, yeah, kind of. Mostly. (laughs) When they met, Adrian had been in some kind of relationship with, maybe with a woman called Suzanne Bonnier, um, mm-hmm. But Suzanne, soon after that, got married to a man and then passed away. Oh. So I'm not sure if they were in a relationship or if they were kind of in a kind of like tense on and off again situation mm-hmm. where Adrian was more interested in Suzanne than reverse, or if they were just close friends and Adrian had unrequited feelings for her or whatever. Yep. But there was another woman in Adrian's life to some extent. Okay. And then she loses this woman. Fitch describes the loss of Suzanne as having, quote, quickened certain tensions between Sylvia and Adrian. So I think that once she's, like, not in a relationship with another woman, whether that's an actual returned committed relationship Mm -hmm. or just, like, something that is occupying her emotionally, she can kind of move on and be like, Hey, Sylvia. Sylvia. Hey. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) Um, Sylvia wrote to her sister and said, we always did hit it off all right, but she used to make me a little frantic, you remember, and then describes that they eventually had what she calls a sort of set to or climax effect one day and then became the best of friends. Oh, yes. So, you know, it it appears that Suzanne passed away and then she and Adrian had a brief period of romantic tension and then they became a couple and then we're like, all right, we're a couple now. Okay. At this point in Sylvia's life, when they first meet. She's not really sure what she's doing with herself, which is very relatable. Hmm. Um, She's studied typing and shorthand, and she knows English, French, Spanish, and Italian, as you do. Uh, So as the First World War is wrapping up, she works for the Red Cross as a secretary and a translator. And this is quite a significant part of her life for her in terms of, like, forming who she is as an Mm -hmm. adult she returns from this work with a very strong sense of purpose and it more firmly establishes her social views in the red cross women were doing like the brunt of the day-to-day work but they didn't get any say in terms of decision making of any kind and sylvia didn't think that was really fair Mm. 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 Uh, so she wrote back to her family that working with the red cross had made a regular feminist of me (laughs) Uh, and also just seeing the effect that the first world war had on communities yeah also fostered socialist and pacifist views Mm-hmm. within her but back in paris so she lived in france with her family and then she moved back to america and then she worked in the red cross in france or in america uh well she like gets the job when she's living in france but then they go off to serbia i think okay yeah. uh and then she comes back to france okay yeah and then she lives in france yeah, so Adrian owns a bookstore, and this bookstore is a very social setting. It's not just, like, a store where people come in and buy books and then leave. It's this real hub for the community. I love the way the bookshops that come up in our um, episodes are always like this. That's true, actually, yeah. Small independent bookstores are mm. one of the, like, best institutions that society has ever created. And mm. uh, when they close down, a part of me dies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the bookstore, Adrian's bookstore, is a real centre for the French literary scene. Uh, And Sylvia decides that she wants to open a comparable centre, but for English literature instead. Her mother gives her $3,000 to do it, yeah. And she finds a property lease on the left bank, and she goes around to all of the secondhand bookstores in Paris finding English language classics, and she decides that she is going to call it Shakespeare and Company. I think I've heard of this bookshop. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. This is a very famous bookshop. Shakespeare and Company opens on the 17th of November, 1919. Very good. Adrienne and Sylvia are among the first women to open bookstores in France. 
I'm so proud of them. Me too. And Shakespeare and Company is the first English language bookstore and lending library in France. Oh, it's a library too. It is a library as well. On one side of the facade, they painted lending library. And on the other side of the facade was painted book hop. Sylvia quite liked the typo and didn't hurry to get it fixed, but eventually she does. <laughs> I didn't realize when you first said book hop that it was a typo. I was like, I'll accept that as a word for a place where you go to get books. <laughs> <laughs> so did Sylvia. Um, did you go there when you were in France? I did. I did. Oh, uh, it was no longer in this location. We'll get into its continuity over the years. Okay. The name Shakespeare and Company sometimes caused confusion because the French, at least then, weren't really necessarily aware of who Shakespeare was. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And so one day a Frenchman came in and asked uh, a male customer who was sitting down reading if he was... Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Uh, And he goes, no, no, I'm one of the company, which is how the social circle that gravitates around the store would sometimes refer to itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the man was still, like, quite confused about, like, well, then who's Shakespeare? (laughs) And the guy, the the male customer, points to Sylvia and goes, well, that's that's Mademoiselle Shakespeare. And he's satisfied by that. Good. Good. Um, Sylvia Shakespeare. Oh, that's great. That's so good. Mm. (laughs) So Sylvia loves books. Really? Yes, as we have come to understand about her. And this is pretty much the sole thing that is keeping this store going at this point. She doesn't have a card catalogue. She doesn't have a filing system. She doesn't mark prices on the books. She isn't really turning any kind of big profit. She just has books and friends to come and read the books. She should hire some admin stuff. Maybe so. So instead of wanting a customer to buy a book as quickly as possible and to make as many sales as possible, she would prefer that a customer she would prefer that a customer came in and sat down and really got to know the book and read the book for a while before making the decision to buy it. She thought that people and books were as difficult to match as people in a pair of shoes and you couldn't just sell any book to any person. Very good. I like it. The publisher Leslie Katz later said that the person who can bring to an ordinary profession a sense of dedicated vocation restores to that profession its genius. Lincoln was a politician, Melville a seaman, Thoreau a camper. She was a bookseller. That was so good. I know. Very yeah. emotional about books mm. and therefore about others who are emotional about books. I like that as I sit here looking towards the microphone, I have a direct line of sight into like, hundreds of books and it's definitely like yes. this episode we record in my living room and my housemates have let me like fill our living room to overflowing with books mm, yeah. it's good i have too many should buy more yeah sylvia thought that she would have to rely on adrian's clientele kind of spilling over into her bookstore uh, and adrian definitely helped establish mm-hmm. a customer base for the bookstore but it was very busy from its opening days it quickly becomes a haven for writers and readers in its own right Mm-hmm. Their bookstores, Sylvia's and Adrian's, uh, I think it's worth noting, stayed non-competitive throughout the rest of their lives. They just supported each other and were quite interdependent and had similar social circles. That's which very I thought good. Was nice. Sylvia was very, very dedicated to helping support the literary community around her bookstore. She would give or find whatever resources struggling writers needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this included providing housing. Food, a postal service, translation, and consultations on editorial and administrative matters. That's so good. And a lot of famous names are attached to this store. Adrienne brought her friend André Gide to sign up, and Sylvia was so intimidated by meeting this famous writer that her hands trembled while she was filling out his card and she spilled ink on it. (laughs) Uh, But later they would become very good friends. And later in the 1930s, during the Depression, when the bookstore was struggling because it was the Depression, Mm -hmm. he was one of the key members who helped organize events and things like that to help keep it open. Hmm. Alice B. Topless and Gertrude Aww. Stein started coming in 1920. Now we get on to the famous lesbians. Yeah, the famous <laughs> lesbians are here. Yes. They joined the library, although Sylvia notes that 
she didn't think that Gertrude was really interested in any books apart from those she'd written herself and was really just doing it out of support for Sylvia. Uh, <laughs> well, that was still nice of her. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, whether or not that's true, I don't know. I think she did borrow a fair few books, so, like, uh. no, but this is this is definitely the impression Sylvia had of her. And and she generally helped to draw up support for the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Sylvia thinks that she was more interested in the kind of atmosphere that she'd created in the bookstore than in, like, the actual books that were being sold and landed there. Oh, yeah. That's reasonable. Natalie Clifford Barney was also a member who is a very famous lesbian. Okay. <laughs> yes. Uh, she had the most famous salon in Paris ah. uh, at the time, which was the centre of this just incredible lesbian social scene. I feel like I've heard about a lot of these lesbians, but yes. never the one who was apparently at the centre. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like she has quite an unassuming name. You've definitely heard about her, like, social circle. Yeah, yeah. Sylvia mentioned that she and Adrian had gone to visit there and had met a bunch of lesbians, um, you know, as you do, uh, in a passage that was suppressed by her editor. She notes that Natalie was very attractive, quote, fatally so, to many women. And Sylvia regretted that she didn't get to meet Radcliffe Hall there, who wrote The World of Loneliness, uh, another very famous lesbian. (laughs) And uh, that she did, however, meet Dolly Wilde, who is Oscar Wilde's amazing lesbian niece. Oh, I heard of her. Um, And Sylvia said that she much resembled her uncle Oscar, but that she was better looking. <laughs> Which I guess is how you feel about two people who functionally look the same, but one of them's a woman when you're a lesbian. <laughs> I think I've heard that quote before, but I didn't uh, know who said yeah. it. Like when I've been reading about Oscar Wilde's niece. Yes. There were many other famous writers who came through the bookstore, who frequented the bookstore. Some names you may know include T.S. Eliot, I.S. Ernest Hemingway, Ezra Pound, uh, perhaps most significantly for the purposes of our story, James Joyce. Sylvia and Joyce, I cannot bring myself to call him James. He was a very formal man. I can't do it. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, I mean, we usually use first names, but we don't always use first names. Anyway, they met in July of 1920 at a dinner party that Sylvia had not been invited to. And she just showed up? She showed up with Adrian, who had been invited. But she felt very nervous about going, and she was on the fence about it, and then she did, and then she met one of the most significant people in her life. Good. She introduced herself to him or approached him with the line, is this the great James Joyce? (laughs) And he confirms it, James Joyce, and they shake hands. They're generally quite impressed with each other. She tells him the name of her book, store and he smiles at that and writes down its address and promises to visit soon mm-hmm. he does visit in fact he visits quite frequently uh, and she comes to hear all about this novel he is writing called ulysses <laughs> james joyce has been writing ulysses since 1914 is james joyce queer uh i don't believe so okay and when he comes in he tells sylvia all about what's going on and everything that's happening with the book so ulysses is one of those great works of fiction that you and i'm speaking directly to you right now have kind of been meaning to read ever since college but never really did and probably won't <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> definitely my relationship with this book yeah have you read uh I, I got it from the library uh like two days ago when i realized i was recording this today and started it okay so i read enough of it that i can like i don't know mention it without having no idea what's happening in it but i haven't read it it's 600 pages oh yeah it's 600 pages i had an english teacher in high school who erroneously told the class that ulysses was a masterpiece that was one sentence and for years i carried this impression around it's not true it has like a normal number of sentences i don't know if there is a book that they mistook for this that there are some weird gimmicky books there are some weird gimmicky there's that book that someone wrote without using the letter e yeah that's what i was thinking of when i said there are weird gimmicky books. there is that one weird gimmicky book there's uh, that book where they gradually drop letters from the alphabet as the book continues till it just kind of stops. All right. I mean, yeah, so it's a, it's a work of modernist literature. It 
follows the lives of three people in Dublin, and as the title indicates, it is very structurally, deliberately evocative of Homer's The Odyssey, Ulysses being the Latinized name of Odysseus, the hero of The Odyssey. So it's a bit weird, and it's new, and it's interesting, and Sylvia is absolutely convinced that it is a work of absolute genius. Mm -hmm. You can read it yourself, you know, you can, as Sylvia would like you to, develop your own thoughts on it without further preconceptions. Yep. I think the general consensus is that, you know, it's worth worth reading. being republished by Penguin every now and then. <laughs> At this point, though, it has not been published and they're having immense difficulty finding any publisher who will hear of publishing it. So, for example, a friend of Joyce's had approached Leonard and Virginia Woolf, oh. who were in the Hogarth Press in 1918 about publishing it, and Virginia rejected it because it was too indecent. <laughs> Which is a lot of gall from someone who's in the Bloomsbury's. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. <laughs> it does have several sexually explicit scenes, which is basically the problem. Mm-hmm. And various other publishers and printers follow suit. It's serialised for a time, and then it's taken to court and declared obscene in America and the UK. Are these just, like, regular sex scenes? Are they particularly obscene sex scenes, or just that people aren't really... It's, it's particularly obscene for the time. Mm-hmm. Sylvia offers to help him publish Ulysses Sorry. if he wants. And he very gratefully accepts, and she essentially becomes a publishing house herself. Just for him? And, yep, she is going to be the publisher. Okay. And she finds a French printer, Durantier. It is said various places on the internet, and also in our good old friend Who's Who in K-Lesbian History, mm-hmm. that she was able to get Durantier to publish it because he did not speak English and therefore did not know what it contained. Okay. I don't have any proof that he did. I, I think perhaps I, I didn't see anywhere that he did speak English, so I, I don't have any proof that he read this book himself. Mm-hmm. But he did know that it was banned in America and that there had been great difficulty publishing it. Okay. Uh, so I feel like there's like a, at least a little bit of disingenuousness going on here, mm-hmm. where like you know he knew that this was a controversial book, even if he hadn't read the sex scenes himself. Yeah, and he was still like, no, I'll publish it. Okay. So, yep, Sylvia arranges that. Okay. Um, Joyce had been quite discouraged. She thought that it was never going to get published and that, you know, he was never going to find a readership for it at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's overjoyed at this news. And he suggests that they print a dozen copies and then maybe they'll have a few left over and they can see. <laughs> uh, Sylvia wrote in her memoir, a thousand copies were to be printed, I told him firmly. Open bracket. There were none left over. Closed bracket. <laughs> This sounds like a fun memoir. Yes. I just liked her tone in those. Yeah, it's a very, like, casual conversational tone. It was very easy to read. It's quite short. It was good. Getting it printed, even though they now have a printer, is still a massive undertaking now. She thought that it was too important not to go to, like, any length necessary Mm -hmm. to publish it. Although she did note that, like, probably just publishing books like this normally is not feasible. (laughs) Um, it was very long. It had to constantly be added to or corrected once parts of it were at the printers. Uh, and they couldn't actually afford to properly pay the printer until after it had been published and they got money back. Mm-hmm. So God knows why. He was just like, yeah, that seems fine. But he was. Yeah. His motivations are... I don't know. I, Sylvia is like quite well connected within the literary scene. So like, I, it's fine. But I don't really know what's going on with John's here. <laughs> I guess if he knows and respects Sylvia, he's like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, I mean, I don't have any evidence of that. I just think it's possible. I think yeah. also maybe he knows that this book's going to be a huge deal. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So Joyce writes it by hand, and then it has to be typed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and typists refuse to type it because it's too sexually explicit. Seven quit. The eighth threatens to throw herself out the window if she has to type any more of it. The ninth rings the 
Joyce's doorbell, throws the manuscript at James Joyce's feet and leaves without being paid. And at that point, they stop trying to hire typists through conventional means. Sylvia finds people she knows to type it up. The husband of one of them picks the manuscript up one evening and rifles through it and is so angry at what he sees that he tears six pages up and throws them in the fire. And despite all (laughs) of these difficulties, Joyce was insistent that it would be published on his 40th birthday. So Sylvia is you know, like haranguing Durantier and saying like, we really need to have this by his birthday. He's very superstitious about this. And he's like, it can't be done. And she's like, can we just get a few copies so like we can kind of loophole our way through this? And he's like, fine. And she goes to all of these lengths to make sure it's like on a train and it's going to be delivered to her by hand by someone because she doesn't trust the post. And she goes and gets it from the train station at 7am and goes, knocks on his door and on his 40th birthday, hands him a printed (laughs) copy of Ulysses. Just an aside quickly that in 1921, the store moves and ends up being opposite Adrian's bookstore. Uh, and also that the depression happens. But as I mentioned, it's okay because Sylvia's community loves her and helps her through. I hope they stand at their respective bookshop counters and just like wave at each other across the street. They totally do. I don't know if they're directly opposite each other, but they definitely <laughs> would probably just like duck out randomly and be like, I'm just going to go like visit my wife. Yeah. Ulysses sells very well in Paris, but it's quite limited in the English speaking world because it's banned. Like it can't yeah. be legitimately printed there. Mm-hmm. That's illegal. Sylvia spends 10 years representing this book and just kind of tending to Joyce's needs. Mm-hmm. and things like that they're in this quite difficult cycle where like they'll get a lump sum of cash and then sylvia uses it to kind of like cover all of the debts that they were sliding mm-hmm. into and then that cycle starts again where like joyce is definitely oh, yeah. spending more money than they're bringing in yep so they're in this quite like hectic stressful cycle she never really makes much money off of it herself off of the book off of the book mm-hmm. off of publishing the book and there's definitely this misconception that joyce's friends have that you know his publishers raking in all this money and not giving him enough or anything like that but she makes very little off of it herself mm-hmm. their friendship is intimately strained over the years for various reasons. I mean, I feel like a situation like this would be stressful yes. anyway. Yes. Sylvia does not have any formal rights to Ulysses. So okay. you can tell this is going to go fine. Eventually, conversation starts about buying it for English-speaking countries. I'm not going to go into the nuances of when this can be published where and mm-hmm. whatnot. It, it doesn't matter. And the letters from publishing companies in like England and America are addressed to Sylvia, but as Joyce's representative in Paris not as his publisher. Yeah, okay. So she's not officially his publisher, even though she published the book. She just kind of did all the work to get it published. Yes. uh, She is not a real publishing company, and they don't have a formal contract. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Or anything in writing. When this is happening, she's saying, well, like, should I be asking for some money if they're going to take on Ulysses? Like, Mm -hmm. and, and in a memoir, she says that part of the reason why she does this is because, you know, if the current publisher, if the original publisher is willing to just hand the manuscript over that seems to kind of, like, decrease its value. Mm-hmm. You know, like, people would probably view it as a more kind of prestigious manuscript to have the rights to if the publisher is very much like, oh, no, 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 you need to, like, yeah. buy the rights off me and things like that. And he doesn't really answer her either way about whether or not she should or not. She tries to a little bit and no one takes her seriously. They're like, who are you and why would you be paid for this? Yeah. He does, and this is kind of weird, that he does have a contract made up for her in 1930 saying that she has full and exclusive publishing rights. They mm-hmm. both sign it. We have copies of it. This okay. 
okay. document exists. It's not witnessed by anyone. Mm-hmm. And then he's offered a deal with Random House for a large sum of money. It's the depression. He needs the money. Uh, and Joyce's friends keep coming by and telling Sylvia, you have to drop this contract. What are you doing? How dare you try and uphold this contract? And she's kind of not really sure what to do. And then... Eventually she drops it because they're telling her you're hurting his interests and you're hurting his work. And she just goes, fine, I'll relinquish all rights then. She rings him up and tells him, you know, do what you like with it. And the comment she makes on it in her memoir is that the midwife doesn't own the baby, the mother does. That's very altruistic of her, given that we also know that she is struggling for money in the depression. Yeah, I don't really know her. Like, it could be that thing where she's like, I'm publishing this years later, I'm going to like take the high route or whatever. I don't really know how much of a thing mm. this was, but it seems to have at the very least been a little bit unfortunate. Yeah. Um, I mean, altruistic may not be the word. It may also just be that she was pressured into that. Yeah, or... I mean, it's a thing where she's been like constantly doing whatever she has to do for this book and for Joyce who she views as this like amazing writer mm, and she's spent her life supporting this writing community so like me. Yeah, yeah anyway uh it's that time of the 20th century again the Nazis are here the Nazis are here in 1941 Paris is occupied by the Nazis a lot of people leave particularly people who are not from Paris and therefore have somewhere else like obvious to go mm-hmm. but Adrian and Sylvia stay the store remains open, Shakespeare and Company stays open, and then America enters the war and life gets a bit more difficult for Sylvia. Americans in Nazi-occupied Paris have to register and report once a week. Yeah. But, you know, like, it's okay. And then a Nazi officer comes in and tries to buy Sylvia's last copy of Finnegan's Wake, which is another book by James Joyce. Yeah. And she goes, no, I I think, uh, you know, it's my last one. I want to keep it for myself. And she takes it out of the window. And he's very, very angry about this. Do Uh, we know if that was a normal thing that she did sometimes with her books or if she just didn't want to sell to a Nazi? I don't know. I definitely saw places being like, you know, she did this on principle, but I don't think that there's any actual proof she doesn't say it's on principle in her memoirs she is as we've established not a particularly like organized bookseller she could have just been like oh yeah oh no that's my last one or whatever or she could have been like no get out you're a nazi okay i mean i think both are perfectly plausible here yes he said that he was going to return that day and he was going to confiscate all of her books okay and she goes i see and he leaves and she gets on the phone yeah so sylvia's apartment is in this building Mm-hmm. The concierge of the building is called and agrees to open up a empty apartment on the third or fourth floor. This is one of those weird things where people can't agree on this for some reason. I mean, we don't have an agreed way around the world to count floors. That's true. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it is higher up in the building. <laughs> and so a bunch of our friends come over and they carry everything, including the shelves, which they have a carpenter take down, and the wow. electric light fittings upstairs. They paint over the signs. If the Nazis come back, they aren't going to find a shop there. That was so on top of things. Yeah. So within two hours, it's gone. Wow. Yeah. They do, however, find Sylvia, and she is interned for six months. Mm. The last recorded sale she makes before this is three books. It's Wuthering Heights, The Foresight Saga, and Percy Shelley's Poems. I just wanted to drop that little Shelley reference in there. Hi, Percy. They moved 5,000 books upstairs. That's crazy. Yes. And this remains this kind of little like secret apartment full of a bookstore until Paris is liberated. Wow. So Sylvia at first is taken to the zoo and then a hotel and then a hospital when it's kept there under mm-hmm. Nazi guard. She's let out after six months and then lives as secretly as possible because she could be re-interned at any time. Yeah. And then the war ends and Paris is liberated. Ernest Hemingway comes by the 
the store and symbolically liberate Shakespeare and Company. <laughs> what um, does Ernest actually do here? I, he just kind of comes past, I think. I don't know. And he's like, hey, it's Everyone free. was very excited about it, but <laughs> I think he just kind of comes past. She records that, like, she's, like, in the building and he, she hears him calling Sylvia, Sylvia. Yeah. And so she runs outside and, like, they crash into each other and he, like, swings her around and kisses her and everyone's cheering. <laughs> you know, so everyone's very happy. Good. That was good. And then he goes off and is like, all right, we need to, like, liberate somewhere else now. <laughs> <laughs> After that, she continues to look after her community and her friends. Recovering from the war is hard for Paris, and mm-hmm. the store never opens again. Oh, but it exists now. Anyway, <laughs> Adrian has been quite sick for years, and now she is diagnosed with Meniere oh. syndrome. Meniere syndrome is a condition of the inner ear. It's not fatal in and of itself, but mm-hmm. it can stop you from being able to walk and give you vertigo and make you like hear distorted sounds and sounds that aren't there and things oh, like yeah. that. Okay. And so it can make life very, very difficult. Uh, and she's immensely suffering basically under this like constant delusion of hearing noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so on the 18th of June, 1955, she asks to be left alone and she commits suicide by overdose. Mm-hmm. Sylvia is obviously very distraught by this. It's quite clear from her letters that she knew that Adrian was going to do it mm-hmm. uh, and also that they'd considered committing suicide together. Mm-hmm. Sylvia wrote, Sometimes you wish you had left with her as she suggested. She knew what living without her was going to be like. She knew everything. They'd been together for 38 years. Sylvia herself, however, didn't die until 1962. She passed away of a heart attack on October 5th, mm-hmm. uh, and her funeral service was held at the Perlisage Cemetery, attended by All the huge <laughs> collection of literary groups that you would expect. Her ashes are taken to Princeton over the objection of her friends, who thought that they should be in Paris. Mm. One of her friends, upon hearing uh, you know, that people were sad that she had died alone, said, she is not alone, not ever. She had the company around her. Mm-hmm. But... As you pointed out, Shakespeare and Company still exists. <laughs> it is in Paris today. It is located on the left bank, though not in either of the locations that Sylvia's store was located. It's very near Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. You can have a very nice walk around Notre Dame and over to Shakespeare and Company. <laughs> that sounds pleasant. Let's yes. <laughs> the bookstore at that location was opened in 1951 by George Whitman, and it was called Le Mistral. It similarly had a literary circle around it, like a very social scene around it. Uh, in its early days, it was frequented by, for example, the beat writers Allen Ginsberg and William S. Burroughs, mm-hmm. uh, and also James Baldwin and Bertolt Brecht. Yep. I think that's all the names dropped. Okay. Okay. That was some names. It was. And in 1958, Sylvia, who I suppose by this time knows that she's never reopening her bookstore, mm-hmm. announces publicly that she is giving him the name Shakespeare and Company. It's not renamed until 1964, which is the 400th uh, anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Oh, okay. George Whitman sounds like a delightful human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had travelled the world, and when he'd been travelling the world, he'd relied on the kindness of strangers for shelter. And so he had this real philosophy that you take in strangers and you support Mm. your community and so forth. He gave the bookstore the motto, be not inhospitable to strangers lest they be angels in disguise. And so he took in writers and he'd have beds in little nooks and crannies of the bookstore and he'd let them sleep there. In exchange, there were some conditions. (laughs) In exchange for reading a book a day. That's achievable. Helping out in the store a little and writing a one-page autobiography for the store's records. That's very good yeah this program still continues today we'll link some stuff about it that's cool i read a couple articles about people who had stayed there for a while and it's just like this very communal life someone described we'll link this i don't remember who described uh you know like you'll wander into the kitchen and there'll be meals and you'll be invited to eat and it becomes this like act of garlicky socialism uh which is my political ideals let's go there <laughs> Live right now let's go okay and i wanted to end on the fact that george whitman 
named his only daughter Sylvia Beach Whitman. And he has since passed away and now she runs the store. So there is, again, (laughs) a Sylvia Beach running Shakespeare and Company in Paris. With that, thank you very much for listening. I have been Eli. I'm Alice. If you want to find us on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. You can find our podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We'll be back on the 1st of June when Alice will be talking to us about Osh Tish, the warrior, craftsperson, and two-spirit Bate from the Indigenous American Crow Nation. And we'll be back with our next media episode on the 22nd of June, when we really definitely will be talking to you about the 1996 Robin Williams film, The Birdcage. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.